It's the enabler of the destruction of democracy. It's the enabler of the destruction of the facts, says of social media the Filipino Nobel laureate Maria Ressa in an interview with Kathmerini from her Manila office. I'm Sakis Ioannidis and you are listening to the Kathmerini podcast. Maria Ressa, also founder of the news agency Rappler, a few days after the Nobel Committee announced that she and the Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov were the Nobel Peace Prize winners for their struggle to defend freedom of expression. Ms. Reza, a vocal critic of the Filipino president Rodrigo Duterte, was scheduled to join the works of the Athens Democracy Forum, but she wasn't allowed to exit Philippines. This is what she told me about the significance of the Nobel Peace Prize, journalism, democracy, and algorithms. So, Maria, uh, what does this prize mean to you? How is peace and journalism related? And what does that tell us, you know, what does that nomination tell us for the state of our world right now? Peace and journalism, uh, the the head of the Nobel Committee, um, Barrett Rice Anderson, actually said that they had been looking at freedom of expression for a long time because they believed that it was the foundation of every democracy and the keepers of the facts, the defenders of the facts, uh, are journalists. And she explained that, you know, you should be able Freedom of expression is about being able to say what you think without fear that, that there will be any kind of repercussions for it. That That's certainly not the case now. Um, and that's her explanation. And what it did for us in Rattlers, it's like a shot of adrenaline. It reminds you that you're not alone. And actually, frankly, it's for more than us. It is for journalists. It is for all of us, right? That that kind of recognition that it is extremely tough and increasingly dangerous to do our jobs. Um, let, let's put it this way. The last time the Nobel Committee did that, the last time a journalist won this prize was right before World War II when the journalist languished in a Nazi concentration camp. It was in the late 30s. And um, this is what I was reminding uh, Rapplers because there was an air of jubilance and they were thrilled because we've been working so hard. But here's the thing, right? Um, when the Nobel Peace Prize was given to that journalist, it I mean, it can get better. That's what we hope that this global attention will help journalists everywhere. But then the second part of it can get worse. It can get much worse. That I think that that's what the Nobel Committee is saying, that this time is dangerous. There is a rise of authoritarian leaders. There is a rise of fascism. And, you know, a, a good reminder that Hitler and Stalin were democratically elected. Um, as was Duterte and Bolsonaro. And, you know, and what they did is to 
crumble once they got elected. You know, their leadership works best on the technology that delivers the news. It's us against them, anger and hate, divisive styles of leadership. Um, once they gain power, they then crumble the institution from within. And so the checks and balances are gone. I think that's the message of the Nobel Committee. And it is part of the reason why it is so dangerous to be a journalist today. What is uh, the role of uh, social media uh, in, uh, in this uh, situation that we, we are facing now as uh, journalists, as uh, democratic people? It's the enabler of the destruction of democracy. It's an enabler of the destruction of facts. It is an enabler. It has become, social media has become a behavior modification system. And we, the people, are Pavlov's dogs to be repeatedly experimented on using the vulnerabilities of our biology. You know, there's an American biologist who actually captured the crisis we're facing. It's E.O. Wilson, who's really known for studying ants and emergent behavior. And he said that the greatest crisis we're facing are our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technology. So that the power of technology, right? Our paleolithic emotions, because this is what is being exploited. Social media, the world's largest distributor of news today is Facebook. So social media, with its algorithmic distribution actually distributes lies laced with anger and hate faster and further than facts. That's what research has shown. And if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. If you don't have truth, you can't have trust. If you don't have this three, then how can you have democracy or any kind of shared reality where complex problems can be solved, right? How can you have a peace process if you can't agree on the facts? So geopolitical power play, uh, it's some of the nations that want power are using the vulnerabilities, the micro-targeting of these social media platforms, Russian disinformation networks. There is a lot of data now that shows how it worked in the Ukraine, how it targeted Americans for the 2016 elections, how it attacked Hillary Clinton. I mean, did Hillary Clinton lose the war because, I mean, lose the presidency because of information operations? But I guess that the reason, so I'm sorry I didn't finish the, the answer to Athens. The reason I really wanted to go to Athens to this democracy summit is it's pretty incredible to go to the birthplace of democracy at an existential moment for democracy. You know, and that's, I think that's where we are. I always say that, you know, an atom bomb exploded in our information ecosystem. And just like after World War II, after Hiroshima, the world must come together to prevent the worst of human nature from determining our future, right? Think about it, like the social media platforms encourage the worst of human nature. That is what the incentive system encourages. And so the beauty and the resilience and the empathy of humanity is gagged. And instead you have these, this kind of toxic sludge that transfers person to person in these networks. So what do, what do we need? Is it, uh, do, you, do we need like a new United Nations for technology or something like that? 
definitely first recognizing the problem. And, and for far too long, the social media platforms, these American tech companies have led us down the wrong path. It isn't about content moderation. It is about algorithmic distribution. It is about, you know, they will say, oh, this is a freedom of speech issue. This is not a freedom of speech issue. It is a freedom of reach issue. Uh, that Sacha Baron Cohen said that many years ago, you know, so it's about what they choose to reward. And then we go back to the business model, which is Shoshana Zuboff wrote this book called Surveillance Capitalism in 2019. And there you can see how insidious it is that it essentially takes the essence of each of our humanity, you know, by taking each post, by using the cell phone as a way to put a substrate up each of the apps and every app is gathering data about you using machine learning to create a model of you that knows you better than you know yourself and then artificial intelligence to serve that up uh, your most weakest moment, your most vulnerable moment to an, a company that's called the new advertising or to a government, the new propaganda. So it, it requires multilateral global solutions that is that includes governments, the democratic states, that includes uh, civil society, that includes tech companies. It's It must be multilateral and frankly should include countries in the global south because we're the ones worst hit, you know. It's already been proven by the UN and by Facebook that genocide happened in Myanmar and yet no one has been held accountable and it continues to happen every day because there's been no there've been no concrete changes. So I think um, one of the things I've done is I'm, I I co-chaired an infodemics working group inside the Forum on Information and Democracy. My co-chair was Maritka Shakti, who was a former EU parliament member. Now she's with Stanford. And what we tried to do is to come up with 12, there's a dozen systemic solutions for what we can do for the infodemics that we're dealing with. And more than 250 tactical solutions. Um, I sit on the real Facebook oversight board, along with Shoshana Zuboff. Roger McNamee, who wrote, you know, who was a Silicon Valley insider who first invested in Facebook, tried to get Cheryl and Mark Zuckerberg, Cheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg to listen to him, that this was very dangerous. Um, and Carol Cadwallader, who broke the Cambridge, the British journalist who broke the Cambridge Analytica story. The real Facebook oversight board is really a real time kind of demand these incremental changes that will have that will force some meaningful change. Um, and we're also building our own tech platform in Rappler. Uh, and the second big thing is for help to help independent journalism survive. So before a few weeks before the Nobel announcement, I agreed to co-chair the International Fund for Public Interest Media, along with the former CEO of the New York Times, uh, Mark Thompson. And that's where we want to go to democratic states and turn the ODA, the Overseas Development Assistance, from 0.3% to media today to 1%. And that can raise a billion dollars a year that we can give to news organizations whose business models have collapsed so that they can survive the time period when we can put guardrails around tech. 
it's, it's an expensive uh, um, game, let's say, you know, uh, being a journalist and giving the facts. I was wondering, how can journalists regain lost trust? You know, because it is a matter of trust with uh, our readers. How do you do that in Rappler? You understand it's not within your power anymore. <laughs> That's one. You know, when we lost our gatekeeping powers, uh, and the new gatekeepers are the tech platforms, part of the reason that trust was lost is complex. It's partly because news has been commoditized, right? Since when does investigative journalism that holds power to account that takes more time and more money to produce, since when is it reduced to a page view to be compared to your police story or your entertainment story. That's That was the beginning of the commoditization of news. And frankly, that was the beginning of the wrong incentives for news, right? But think about it like this again, if you don't have facts in a battle for facts, where journalism becomes activism. But here's the problem, that key word you mentioned is trust, right? Trust is incredibly important. But part of the reason the Duterte propaganda machine attacks me and Rappler is because, and, and we know this because UNESCO did a study of almost half a million social media attacks against me. Um, I can send it to you, but you know, six, they figured out that 60% of the attacks are meant to tear down my credibility, to tear down Rappler's credibility, and then 40% are dehumanizing. They're sexist, misogynistic. They look for any vulnerability, anything that will shut me up, right? It is meant to tear down my spirit. And you know, when I see this and I study this, it only gives me more resolve to demand accountability. One, this shouldn't be happening. And two, who is doing these information operations? I think uh, yesterday, Facebook just announced that they would give greater protection to journalists, something that I've been asking for since 2016. You know, when I came to them with an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour in 2016, they told me I was a public figure, you know, and that's not true, number one. I'm not a politician, I'm a journalist. And our constitution in the Philippines is patterned after the United States. We have a bill of rights and a freedom of the press. Um, we have extra protection in the constitution because we gain our strength from the people. The people need the facts. So back to your question about how do we rebuild trust? We will never be able to rebuild trust if the world's largest distributor of news remains these American social media platforms that tear apart trust. Maria, uh, Philippines is heading uh, for an election in May 2022. Uh, do you feel, uh, is there something changing uh, in those elections? I was reading that Duterte might uh, not be uh, a candidate, but um, will that have an impact, you know, uh, overall? We don't. We won't know because, again, of another legal loophole. So the Duterte family has held power in Davao City for, my gosh, since 1988. So this is another one of those legal loopholes they use called substitution. So the, the filing for candidacy has already ended. It ended last Friday. And yet what they're doing now is it's kind of like this shock and awe. It's the tactics that actually in the end 
tear apart the spirit of the laws. So, so we they will now have until November 15th by utilizing this loophole to substitute. It's called substitution. It's bizarre. But anyway, so we'll, what will happen? Um, this is really the battle for facts. You know, there are now 10 candidates for president. Uh, about five have the political machinery to really compete, which means no one will have a majority. President Duterte was elected in 2016 with uh, 39% of the votes, about 16 million voters um, in a country of 110 million people. So this is, we don't have runoff elections, so most likely something similar would ha will happen. But the reason why I say this really is the battle for facts is because the son of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, um, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bong Bong Marcos, declared that he would run for president last week. And so 35 years after his family, after the Marcos family was chased out of the Philippines into exile by the People Power Revolt in 1986, the son of the dictator is now running for president. And Rappler has done these stories that expose the disinformation networks that Bong Bong Marcos has put in place. And in fact, Facebook in September 2020 took down information operations from China. So you can see the geopolitical power play connected here. Those information operations from China were campaigning for the daughter of Duterte, Sara Duterte, for president in May 2022. It was polishing the image of the Marcoses, and it was attacking me and Rappler, right? It was also creating fake accounts for the US presidential elections two months later and using AI generated photos to do that. So Facebook took that down and announced it. And that gives you an idea of, of what we are going to face in our elections. You can't have integrity of elections if you don't have integrity of facts. Do you feel any optimistic uh, by the fact that uh, there are now two whistleblowers on, uh, against Facebook? Actually, I would say there were four whistleblowers already. It was. Uh, the first was Roger McNamee. He was the Silicon Valley investor, the early investor. He wrote a book called Zucked. That was early. Then there was uh, Christopher Wiley, the, the data analyst who was with, who created the machine behind Cambridge Analytica. Then there was Sophie Zhang, who uh, exposed how countries were using the disinformation. And then finally, Frances Haugen. And she just said what we had thought, but it's different this time because, you know, you could see bipartisan support because she had the documents of Facebook that showed that the leaders knew that their algorithms were harming teenagers, that they were making choices that were harming people on their platforms for more money. You know, this is something we have known for a long time, but, you know, the shift from content moderation to algorithmic distribution happened with Francis Haugen. And I hope we see more of that because I feel like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill, like a combination of Sisyphus and, oh, you're Greek <laughs> and Cassandra, you know? Because um, I've been talking about this since 2016. In 2016, my co-founder and I wrote a three-part series of 
it's called, this title was Propaganda War, Weaponizing the Internet. That was the first piece. The second piece, which I also wrote, was how Facebook algorithms impact democracy. And then the third piece was what my co-founder, Chai Havileño, wrote, um, and this was Manufactured Reality. Right? Well, where we actually manually counted the impact of 26 fake accounts. So we proved that 26 fake accounts were being used. They were following each other. It's called a sock puppet network. And then we manually counted how, what impact they would have. How many other accounts do they influence? And those 26 fake accounts influence up to 3 million other Facebook accounts, right? So the ripple is exponential. So we came under attack in 2016 because of that, because we exposed the propaganda machine and what my government was doing. And, you know, the other one, of course, is the, the brutal drug war. So in 2016, we demanded an end to impunity of Rodrigo Duterte and his brutal drug war and Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. What is the lesson here for Europe from uh, what uh, from what has happened in Philippines? It's happening in, in everywhere. It's global. You know, if anything, what we have learned, and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this positive because we've learned something from the from the platforms. We've learned that human beings have a lot more in common than we have differences, right? Because we tend to look at differences of country, language, and culture, but. What the social media platforms have proven is that we are all easily manipulable, manipulatable based on our biology. Um, and that can be a good thing, right? Like imagine if they decided to encourage charity or empathy, right? Instead, what is being encouraged is anger and hate. So Part of it is because that brings the most money. That is the business model that Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. She published that book in 2019. And she, you know, so I work with her in the real Facebook oversight board. She's just brilliant. But the reality is that it's already happening in your countries. Um, in, I think, the domino. So the first country where it really happened was the Ukraine. And that one we all watched all around the world. But we didn't really know what was happening. And then after that, in 2016, I think, is when the dominoes all began to fall, as in in elections, right? And the first person elected was Duterte in May. A month later, you have Brexit. Then you have the Catalonia elections, and you have the U.S. elections. Bolsonaro gets elected. Macron's election. For, for the French elections, Facebook took down 30,000 fake accounts. This was in 2017, but they didn't do that in the Philippines in 2016. So it is already happening. We are already manipulated. Facebook, social media has become a behavior modification system. And I say that all the time, and I know that it sounds very geeky, but essentially it is insidiously manipulating us for power and money. Maria, let's let's try to end this in a positive way. Uh, have you find? I'm sorry to depress you. <laughs> no, no. Uh, have you find any time to celebrate the, the prize? You know, because I'm I'm reading uh, interviews every day from you and <laughs> seeing lectures and uh, stuff like that. Have you time? Have you find any time? You know, just to uh, say, wow, uh, let's celebrate. How how do you feel about that? A journalist's only defense is to shine the light. You know that, right? That's the only thing we can do. We tell the stories. And when I came under attack by this administration in 2017, 
2018. I was arrested in 2019. I was already old. I'd been, this is my 35th year. So I'd been doing journalism for a while. I knew why I was doing what I was doing. So it was easy to take the path I was on. When the Nobel Committee spotlighted what we were doing, I just felt like this is like, this is a boon to journalists. You know, this is for all of us. And that means we have to work doubly hard because I think that they, the Nobel Committee recognizes we are on the precipice. We could lose democracy. Fascism is on the rise. And it, I cringe when I say that, right? But the, the use of the technology to elect populist authoritarians, digital authoritarians, is scary. Anyway, I'm not answering your question, which is, no, not yet, because there's too much work to be done. Um, the announcement came while I was writing a book. Thank God I had just finished the majority of the draft I'd already given to my publisher, but I was still trying to write my last chapter. And now it's changed everything, right? Um, and then the other part is I'm very conscious that I'm only a placeholder for every journalist and that what I want to do is to take that spotlight they gave and shine the light in every country where journalists are under threat. So yesterday I was I spoke to editors in Venezuela, to journalists in Venezuela, which ranks even lower than the Philippines in the World Press Freedom Index. Very close to Venezuela is India. I am very lucky because I think Part of the reason we were able to stay alive is because I spent almost 20 years of my career with CNN. I lived outside, you know, I was working for an international news organization, and most of my colleagues went on to head other news organizations. So they knew me, um, and I knew them. I guess this is it. It's like, you know, now I'll go to the Marvel comics, Avengers Assemble. You know, this is... This is it, and we must win the battle for facts, the battle for truth. That's kind of what I'm writing in my book. You know, this is the fight for our future. And I'm so thankful to the Nobel Committee. And, you know, I know that Dmitry is, has been fighting his battles in Russia for a very long time. So, you know, I think this is, this is, a, a, this is something that we should get energy from so we can win the battles. I didn't answer your question, did I? <laughs> I didn't answer your question, I'm sorry. I will soon. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you, Maria, so much. Tell about more than me. Yeah, I hope we all, thank we, you. we all win this battle together. Thank you so much.